What is the meaning of all of this anyway? Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? Surely I can't be the only one who has wrestled with these thoughts. Where do I fit into all of this? What is my purpose? The pleasures of this life promise me fulfillment, and yet its fleeting and ruinous nature only leave me chasing after more. More of what didn't fill my soul the last time around. The search for purpose and the pursuit of success and the recognition of others always comes up short. I've wondered if it can somehow be found somewhere in the hustle of all this endless motion and movement. But purpose still escapes me. Because nothing I find, nothing I have ever found, is ever truly lasting. Nothing I hold is ever truly durable. But when I see life, when I see the moments of beauty, the moments of hope, I know there has to be a purpose to all of this. I know there has to be an answer to my questions. I know there has to be more, the ceaseless searching. There must be something that can tell me who I am. Truly, there is someone. Someone who can tell me who I am. Someone who can show me true purpose. Singing. And uh, what a blessing that was. If you want to hear it again, they'll be singing in Spanish at one o'clock. And uh, so you keep those ladies in prayer. But uh, I'm glad that you're here this morning. And uh, we are starting uh, our church, a new sermon series entitled True Purpose. And uh, the heartbeat of this series is that we can answer those hard questions that ring inside of the hallways of everyone's heart. Uh, why are we here? Why was I created? Where am I going? What is the purpose? What is true purpose uh, really? And where can it be found? And so we're going to start out this morning uh, examining probably the most important question that you'll ever come face to face with is who is Jesus and why did he come? And uh, so we're going to be looking at that. If you have a Bible, I want you to go over to John chapter number three and uh, we're going to read a good portion of John chapter three. If you don't have a Bible and you got a phone, uh, you can look up uh, the text there or you can look on to somebody next to you. Uh, But let me say this. We got a lot of folks who are here for the very first time and I just want to say I am totally thrilled you decided to come to church today. I'm extremely grateful that you came and uh, genuinely, genuinely very thankful. Now, I get it. You don't know me, and in large part, I don't know most of you, and uh, we're just going to have to kind of be okay with that for a little bit, and uh, you're stuck in the auditorium with me, and in some respects, I'm stuck with you, and so we'll make the most of the hour that we have together, and I really do think the Lord's going to bless, but I understand I'm a random guy to some of you who came for the first time this morning inside of a random church you decided to attend because a family member or a friend invited you, and uh, But let me tell you this. I know you don't know me, but can I just for a moment tell you why I'm up here this morning? Uh, The whole reason I got up and put the right shoes on this morning, and uh, that's kind of a joke. A couple weeks ago, I came with two different shoes on on accident. But I put the right, the same shoes on this morning. And the reason I put my shoes on this morning was to come and tell you this, that each and every one of you, it does not matter where you come from, does not matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what skeletons you think you have in your closet. I want to tell you this morning that you are deeply loved by your maker. 
You are deeply loved by the God who hung the universe and spoke the universe into place. Uh, The Bible tells us in Psalm chapter number 80 that if you could number the thoughts of God toward you, they are more in number, listen, than the sand of the whole world. If you could count every single grain of sand in Bakersfield alone, it would take you an eternity. But God says, I think about you, my people, more than the sand of the entire world. And uh, you have amazing value in the eyes of God. You have a purpose, a true purpose. He formed you in your mother's belly and knows your name. He knows the hairs on your head. You have amazing value for uh, in the eyes of your God. And here's the thing. He made you for a purpose. He made you in a path for you that he desires for you to know where the greatest fulfillment of your entire life could ever be known is inside of that path he's designed for you. And I get it. If you're not a church person, I didn't grow up a church person either, so I'm identify with you, but I get it. That sounds like churchy kind of words, right? Like God loves you and you have purpose. That sounds like positive talk. But can I tell you this morning, I'm going to show you God does more than just positively affirm that you have value. God does more than just speak that you that he loves you and that he cares for you. He displayed his love for you in the most grandiose, amazing, immeasurable possible way when his son was given to die in your place and in mine. And we're going to discuss exactly what that means. What's the whole purpose of Jesus coming? And so let me just square again with our crowd this morning. Being that I don't know um, uh, our guests this morning, I know a couple of your names. I, I have a bad time with names. So forgive me if I ask you your names again. Um, just just bear with me. I'm, I'm slow at that. Our church family knows that. But I don't know the, the spectrum of belief systems represented by our guests this morning. Some in the room, no doubt, uh, you have some measurable faith. And maybe you grew up in church and you might be able to name the apostles or the books of the Bible. Uh, You may understand some concepts of who God is or who Jesus is. You might consider yourself religious, okay? That's one side of the spectrum. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't maybe consider yourself religious, but you'd say, well, I'm I'm spiritual and I don't really go to church, but I have a relationship with the Lord. I love Jesus. uh, And that's awesome. I'm glad you're here. There are also probably some in the room today that wouldn't say you're religious, or spiritual, some in the room, if you were just honest, you'd say you're, you're not religious. You're not religious at all. You're not even, maybe consider yourself a, a, a believer. You might even say proudly, hey, I'm an unbeliever. And maybe you're here this morning, uh, and I, I mean this as a compliment, maybe you're here this morning and the whole reason you came was out of honoring the person who invited you. And that, that's an honorable thing. Uh, you wanted to be a blessing or you wanted to be kind of an expression of love toward that neighbor or family member that invited you. And to all of you, regardless of where you land on this kind of uh, gradient scale, let me say, you were fearfully and wonderfully made by the God of the universe who knows you and is pursuing you and he loves you and he has a heart for you. Now, I do want to carefully say this too. Uh, Lest you think you came to be puffed up this morning, I'm going to have to get to some bad news in just a moment, uh, but I do want you to understand that you are deeply loved. We're going to spend a lot of time this morning examining our collective sinful nature that every one of us is a sinner. Uh, from the pew to the pulpit, uh, from the person in the room who's never walked into a church until this morning to the person who was born in the church nursery, we are all collectively sinners. But in spite of our sin, God still loves us and God's still pursuing us. And that's actually what makes the love of Jesus so much more beautiful. When we examine the reality of who we are and then we examine the reality of who he was and is and the purpose that he came our value begins to shine brighter and brighter because he has given us an amazing amount of mercy through the sacrifice of his son. So here's what I need from each of us this morning, whether you're guests with us or a church member, I want to borrow two things, okay? I'm going to tell them to you, and then I want you to consider giving those things to me. Number one, 
I need your attention to what I'm going to say, okay? Number two, I need a measure of your trust. Now, hold on. I'm not asking you to trust me. You don't know me, right? That'd be crazy and relatively irresponsible to just take some random guy who can't pick the right pair of shoes, take his word for it. Uh, I'm not asking you to trust me. What I'm asking you to do is what we're going to do is we're going to read this book, and I'm asking you to trust what you find in the Bible. I'm not asking you to trust what a religious person says. You can disregard. We're going to do some reading this morning. We're going to read in the Bible this morning. And you could throw away everything I'm saying outside of what I read in the Bible. And I still genuinely believe you could come to Christ as Savior today. So I'm not asking you for your trust in me. I'm asking you to just listen to me. And I'm asking you to trust what you find in Scripture this morning. Because this book is God's breathed out record, His word for all of humanity. And within the word of God, you find the truth of who you and I are. The Bible very clearly pulls back the veil of our flesh and shows the heart of man. The scripture tells us that the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. So this morning, I can fake it to you, but I can't fake it to this book. You can fake it to me, but that Bible is going to tell me exactly what's in your heart and what's in my heart. But the other beautiful part of the other side of that kind of coin is it also not just shows us who we are, it shows us who Jesus is. It shows us what Jesus did to redeem us and to make us new. And if you're willing to allow the Bible to establish those facts for us, let the word of God be the authority this morning. Not some preacher, not some priest, not some religious person, not your cousin who invited you. We're just going to let the word of God speak this morning and establish who we are, who Jesus is, and how he desires to make us new. And in that, we're going to find true purpose. We're going to figure out how God designed this whole entire thing and his desire to redeem us. So all I'm asking for is attention to my words and trust in his. And if you'll give me about 20 minutes or so, I really think we can go somewhere. I'll say this too. If I had 20 minutes on national television with the entire uh, nation, this is the, these are the words I would speak. If I had 20 minutes with a dying relative and only 20 minutes... I would spend those 20 minutes explaining what I'm about to explain to you because it is the most important message you will ever hear and I can ever hear. And I'm going to take it straight from the words of Jesus himself. You're going to, if you have a Bible that has the words of Christ in red, you're going to realize that the vast majority of John chapter number three is going to deal with Jesus speaking those words in red. These are not the words of a Baptist pastor. These are not the words of a priest. These are not the words of a religious institution. I'm going to take you straight to the source of God himself in flesh Jesus speaking for himself. Now, we're going to John, John's gospel. John's gospel account opens in John chapter number one with a declaration of Jesus' deity, and you can read that sometime. Uh, but John chapter number two records an amazing story where Christ is in Jerusalem and he's doing miracles. Amazing things are happening. He fashions a whip and drives out money changers for polluting the worship system of God. And uh, he, uh, he comes into this story in John chapter number three we're going to start seeing what Jesus is doing uh, and his earthly ministry is beginning. So he comes on the scene. He's already made waves in John chapter 1 and John chapter number 2. He's already making massive waves. The religious leaders of the day are already threatened by him. The poor are being lifted up. Man, lives are being changed. Outcasts are being ascribed value. Lives are, are, are miraculously being rescued. And this is, this is very interesting because I want you to see actually John chapter number two, how it ends. Before we get to John chapter three, which we will read, would you look with me at John chapter number two, verse 23? It's the very end of the chapter. It says this, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. 
So could you imagine, and you don't have to imagine, this happened, we're remembering it, but God dons himself in human flesh and steps into humanity. Can you imagine what waves he would make? Could you imagine what power and authority he would display? And the Bible says that it just merely seeing what he's doing, many people are believing. But I want you to see what Christ has to do in verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. So here in Jerusalem, uh, Jesus is doing miracles and people are believing, but he can see inside their hearts. He can see that there's some unsettling going on. He can see that some people are misunderstanding his purpose for being here. At this time, people, some people are believing that Jesus is a threat to their authority. Jesus didn't come to threaten some earthly human's authority. He's God in flesh. That's not his purpose. He also knows that some people, perhaps, gentlemen right here on the front row, I'm not going to ask you again. Stay quiet. Thank you. Uh, he, he's not coming to threaten some religious institution. Uh, he's not coming to, uh, to, to overthrow even Rome. And there's some people who think that Jesus is coming to start some kind of revolution and political thing. And so Christ says this in Jerusalem, I have to leave. I cannot trust these people. They're, they're not going to handle this right. But I want you to notice before he leaves what he does in chapter 3. I'll tell you just briefly, there's a man in chapter number 3 named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a religious ruler. And Nicodemus has seen some of the miracles of Christ, no doubt. Uh, There's no doubt that Nicodemus has heard about the whipping story up in the, the temple where Jesus had driven people out. And Nicodemus has questions. Nicodemus isn't trying to drive Jesus out like the other Pharisees. Nicodemus just wants to know who Jesus is. What is the purpose of his coming? He wants to understand this. He's, he's missing something. He, he, he has an understanding of who Jesus is, perhaps, but doesn't fully grasp who he is and what his purpose is. So that's the person we're going to meet in John chapter 3, verse number 1. Let's look at it, if you would. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees. Now, if you don't know, the Pharisees are the religious rulers of Israel. His name is Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So here you have this religious ruler, this very important person who is sitting down with Christ. But did you notice what time he came to him? The Bible says he came at night. He didn't want anybody to see him. And he calls for Jesus and he sits down and he says, hey, listen, uh, I don't know who you are. I have a concept of you, but I, I have a lot of questions. And can I just say this morning, that's an okay position to be in this morning. If you're here and you say, well, I know that Jesus is, he's somebody, <laughs> he's a spiritual figure, right? He, I, he, so I've heard some people say he's God. I've heard some people say he's the son of God, but I have questions. Can I just say, if that's you this morning, you're in the best chapter of your life. This is the chapter for you this morning. If you have a concept of Christ and an idea of who he is, but you don't fully grasp what his purpose was, why are you here? What was the cross? What was the point? Why did you get born in Bethlehem in the virgin birth? What's the whole thing? And that may be you this morning. I want you to see what happens with Nicodemus. Look at verse number three. It says, Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, listen, if you're churched, you're like, yeah, that's good. I know what he's good. I know what he's doing. If you're a Nicodemus, you're like, I got to do what? I got to be born twice? Like, it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. Nicodemus asks Christ, hey, I don't know who you are. I know that you're from God because no one can do the things you do except they be from God. But I don't understand exactly who you are. And Jesus answers with 
you cannot see the kingdom of God except you be born again. Doesn't that sound like a non-answer? Doesn't it sound like a change of subjects? But here's what just happened. Jesus said, let me paraphrase it for you, give you the Casey commentary. He said, Nicodemus, you're looking at the kingdom of God and you can't see it. He said, you're missing the forest for the trees. You want to know who I am, but you cannot know me. You cannot see me. You cannot grasp the kingdom of God except you be born again. Now, again, if you're here this morning and you're church, do you understand what it means to be born again? If you're not from church, you're like, what do, how, do I, how do I get born twice? That doesn't make sense to me. And nor did it make sense. Listen, listen. Nor did it make sense to Nicodemus. Look at what Nicodemus says. He, he has the most logical response to this statement of Jesus that you could ever muster. Some of you are asking the same thing Nicodemus asks. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man, a grown man, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Again, that is a total, he's not being irreverent. He's just confused. How does somebody get born twice, Jesus? Nicodemus is no doubt an older man. He's in the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. And he says, Jesus, am I supposed to go back into my, my mom and get born? How does this work, Christ? What are you trying to say? How's that even possible? And I want you to see what Christ answers. Again, we're just letting Jesus speak for himself. Jesus answered, verily, verily, which means pay attention. I'm saying it again. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water. That's a physical birth. First, except a man be born of water and of spirit, of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now listen, whether you're church or not, we all understand a physical birth, a water birth. We were all born, right? You're here this morning because of a physical birth. Uh, and can I just sidebar real quick? Uh, what Christ says is there's a physical birth, but in order to be spiritual, you need to be spiritually born as well. There must be, you must be born of the spirit. And again, can I just take a moment and acknowledge this? Being religious doesn't mean you're saved. You have seated in front of Jesus Christ a religious ruler. That'd be like the pastor of the church. And he's sitting in front of Christ and he's like, I don't get who you are. I have a concept, but I can't answer these questions. I don't know who you are. And Jesus looks at him and says, Nicodemus, you're missing it. You are not entering into the kingdom of God. You are not going to heaven because you have never been born spiritually. So if you're here this morning and you are trusting in your religiousness to go to heaven, you're very much in the same boat as Nicodemus. And I'll tell you right now, Nicodemus, Jesus affirms, Nicodemus is on his way to hell. Nicodemus, a religious man, a preacher of the Old Testament, a doctor of the law. None of us have those credentials this morning. Not even myself have these credentials. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, no, you're, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. So just because you're religious and have a relationship or have a concept of God or have some you know, religious background does not equate to being born again. You must be born again, he says to Nicodemus. Look at verse number six. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not. He says, don't be confused that I say unto thee, you must be born again. He, he's, he's really driving it home to, to Nicodemus' logic. He says, Nicodemus, if something, if something is alive physically, it's because it was born physically. And if something is to be alive spiritually, it must be born spiritually. So here today in front of me at 1960 Ming Avenue are a bunch of people who are alive physically because you were born physically. But because you were born physically does not mean that you are made alive spiritually. 
God has gifted to each of us life and breath and ability and some measure of strength. And you may not have everything you want, or maybe you don't have all your faculties. And some people are on crutches this morning and some people come in in wheelchairs. You may not have everything you want physically, but you are born physically. But the question is, have you been born spiritually? Nicodemus being religious is not born again. Let's keep reading. Verse number eight. He says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. This is Jesus speaking. Wherever the wind wants to blow, it blows. And thou hearest the sound thereof. Notice what he says. But canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. Now, here's what he said. Nicodemus, there's some things you can't physically see. You can't see the wind. He said, you can't see someone being born spiritually. I, I was at my, all of my children's births, four of them, and I saw it and I was there. But my, the spiritual birth of a person is not something you can lay hands on. That's, that's, there's no womb involved. There's no water involved. It's just the spirit. And listen, I love what Nicodemus is doing. He's asking questions. I don't know. I, I heard this a long time ago. It's not okay to ask God questions. That's not true. Amen. You can ask God questions all the time. Amen. You got Nicodemus at night, scared, saying, hey, Jesus, can we meet? And hey, I know that you're from God, but I don't know exactly who you are. Can you clarify? And Jesus begins verse by verse, line by line, to clarify who he is and why he came. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Jesus is pointing out that religion does not equate to being born spiritually. Verse 11. Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know uh, and testify of, the, uh, of that we have seen. And ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe it not, uh, uh, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, uh, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. So, so there's a bit of a backstory here. Here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He looks across and he says, Nicodemus, you've heard me preach. Nicodemus, you've, I've already taught these things. I, I was standing in Jerusalem and I was teaching to the crowds and you haven't believed on the things I've already said. And I need you to just take me at my word, which is why I asked in the beginning of the service this morning to listen to me, but to trust the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus affirm that he must be born again. So are you ready? Here comes his answer. Here comes in verse number 14, the answer you and I are chasing after this morning. Who is Christ? Who are you? I know you're religious and I know you're spiritual, but I, don't, I can't grasp exactly what your purpose and coming is. Who are you? Look at verse 14. I love this. He says, and, Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now look up here. I get it. You might not know the Old Testament reference here, but in the book of Exodus, there are serpents that are biting the children of Israel because of their rebellion. They have sinned against the holy God and God judges all sin. That's a universal uh, truth in the entire Bible. And so God sends these fiery serpents to bite the children of Israel. And God, Moses comes to God and says, we need to be forgiven. And God says, I'll make a way. And he tells Moses to hammer out a brazen serpent and put it on a rod. And if you're familiar with the medical field, that's nearly all of the medical emblems is a snake on a, on, a, on a rod. That's the reason. And Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, and everyone who would look to the serpent would be healed. Everyone who would look to the rescuer could be healed. And here's what Jesus said. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why did Moses lift the rod? To save people from their sin. Why did God send his son to die on the cross? What was the purpose? To save people. Look at verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him 
Jesus, should not perish, but have eternal life. And then we get to the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. But now you know the context. How many of you have ever heard John chapter 3, verse number 16? John 3, 16. You've got athletes who write it on their shoes. You've got athletes that write it on their hat. You're going to read the verse, but now you know the context of it. Look at John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at this conversation between a religious man and the son of God. Nicodemus says, Jesus, who are you? And Jesus says, listen, as that serpent was lifted up to save humanity, I will be lifted up to save humanity. He said, the father loved the world so much that he gave me his son to die in man's place so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish in the eternal fire of hell, but have everlasting life with God the Father. These are Jesus' own words. You don't need to hear from a church or a religious system if Jesus himself says, this is the way to be saved. So who is Christ? He's the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. He's not a normal man or just a religious teacher like Nicodemus thought he might be sent from God. He is the only begotten of the Father, God in flesh, in humanity. He is the one. Who is Jesus? He is the one who died to satisfy God's wrath on sin. I'm going to teach you something just briefly. Religion can teach this, and it's wrong, that God just forgives sins. God doesn't forgive sins. He atones for sin. Think about it like this. If you owed a debt on a credit card, the credit card company can't just, well, don't worry about it. Now they'll let someone else pay it. That's atonement. God can pay your penalty, but he can't just ignore your penalty. That would make him an unjust God. We'll revisit that theme. But understand this. He was the one who paid the penalty for mankind. So listen, question number one has been answered. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God sent by the father to redeem mankind. Question number two I don't want to say it's more important, but it's, it's next important. So then why did he come? If this is who you are, Jesus, then, then why are you here? Look at verse number 17 for the answer. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus did not come to condemn you and I. Because listen, believe me or don't believe me, he could condemn us. Because the fact of the matter is, the man standing up here happens to have both shoes that match. The man standing up here this morning is a sinner. You might have never seen me sin because you've only seen me for 15 minutes and I've been up here. I haven't had a chance to yet. But I'll sin before the day's up. You'll sin before the day's up. We are all sinners. And if God sent his son to condemn the world, he'd find no lack of people to condemn. But I love what Jesus said. I'm not here to condemn the world. But God sent his son through the son. The world might be saved and not condemned. Listen, understand this today. God is a holy God. A holy, holy, holy God who cannot just ignore injustice and sin. That's the idea of, well, you did wrong, but I love you. You can get away with it. Sometimes we'll do that as parents. That's bad parenting. That's injustice. Let's put it in a a context we'd all understand. Nobody in this room, regardless of your political affiliation this morning, regardless of your view of police and judge, judges, nobody in this room likes it when a judge or a person in authority gives a pass to someone because they like them. You got a rich person or a celebrity who gets a slap on the hand and gets away with awful things. Every one of us are like, that's not fair. 
Because inside of the heart of every man is this desire that justice must be served. Sin has to be judged. We are in it. We inherently know that reality. We hate the idea of someone getting away with something that hurt other people. Somebody, you know, lights a firecracker and throws it into a school and burns it to the ground. Man, justice needs to be served. Someone's texting and driving and runs through a stop sign and puts a family in the hospital. Justice needs to be served. And understand this. God gives no passes to any man. And you'll see that in a little bit. God is perfect in justice. He rewards all iniquity upon every single sinner. He cannot and will not, according to the law of God, and he is bound by his word, he cannot and will not turn a blind eye and ignore our speech. The Bible says every idle word we give an account for. He cannot turn a blind eye to our hatred or our greed or our covetousness. Psalm chapter 89, 14 tells us that justice and judgment are the habitations of thy throne. He is literally surrounded by justice and judgment. It is his dwelling place. And for that, we should be grateful that God is going to measure out to all of the atrocities that we see, all of the bloodshed, all of the the injustice and racism and hatred and all that goes on in this world. We ought to be grateful that at the end of it all, the judge will judge all things and all men and he'll judge all sin. The Bible tells us that the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. So you may be in your bathroom, but God sees the sin. You may be out with your friends and your wife might not know, but God sees our sin. And every single thing, nothing goes unnoticed. And to be honest with you, that's a good thing. Because listen, listen, we want every sin and every sin sinner to be to be judged. Well, that that creates a problem, doesn't it? Because that's us too. And if God is a just and holy God, and if God is omniscient and he sees all things. Well, then the fact of the matter is, if every sin is judged, that means that every one of my sins is judged. And if every sinner is accountable for every sin, that means that I am accountable for all of my sin. And you know what that makes me? Condemned. That makes me damned. That makes me guilty of a penalty that I am alone responsible to pay a debt I must satisfy. And that debt is death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So I'm condemned. Sir, I didn't know this is where this is going. No, it's where it has to go. Because the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. God sent his son so you and I could escape condemnation. So you and I could escape what we rightly deserve. But that begs the question, how? How does a God who sees all things and who demands that every sin be accounted for and every debt be settled, how is it that that God, a perfect judge who cannot ignore sin, how can Christ then allow me to escape condemnation? The simple answer, listen, and it's a beautiful answer, is that he satisfied it himself. You and I condemned, deserving of death. Jesus took our place. You see, the reason there's crosses in churches is to remind us that that's what we deserve. That's the penalty of our sin, you and I. But I want to read for you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. For he, Jesus, forgive me, no, for he, the Father, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You understand? Let me show you right here. Over here, we'll use this example as Jesus. Christ, perfect, holy, no condemnation. You and I... Guilty, 
filthy, sinful, deserving of condemnation. And the Bible says that he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus quite literally took your place and mine, took our condemnation upon himself, became sin for us, and the Father laid your sin account and my sin account on his Son, and as Isaiah 700 years before Christ's death prophesied, that it would please the Father to bruise the Son so that by his stripes you and I could be healed. Let's get to my absolutely favorite part this morning of our text. Back in John chapter 3. We just read verse 16. We just read verse 17. I want you to read verse 18 with me this morning. It says, you want to look for a key word. There's one beautiful word. How do we escape our condemnation? How do we receive this switching of seats, this mercy as it were? How does it become ours? Verse 18, he that, would you read that word out loud? Believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Listen, listen, listen. There's a really basic math question. How do I move from here, the sinful seat, to here, the just seat? Jesus has already sat in my seat, but how do I move from one to the other? He that believeth is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Look at verse 18. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It says nothing about religion. It says nothing about your good works. He doesn't say, well, you're condemned if you don't go to church. It has nothing to do with that. He doesn't say, well, if, if you don't uh, give to, to, to the offering or if you're not sacrificial toward other people, you're condemned. No, it comes down to one thing. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he hath not believed on the Son of God. So listen, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. And don't forget, I know he's talking to us this morning through text, but he's talking to Nicodemus. And he says, listen, Nicodemus, I know you understand somewhat of me, but let me tell you who I am. I'm the son of God sent to earth. I am come to give you spiritual birth. You must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And that can only happen, Nicodemus, through belief. It can only happen, Nicodemus, if you'll place your faith like like the Hebrews did to the serpent in the wilderness. Lift it up, and he'll save all people. If you'll place your faith and trust in Jesus, he that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the Son of God. So there's only two outcomes to all of humanity. All in this room fall into one of these two categories. There are those who, through belief and acceptance in the finished work of Jesus, the cross, Those who believe have received freedom from condemnation. That's the only option. There's option number two. Those who by unbelief and rejection in the work of Jesus, that will result in your eternal condemnation. Daniel chapter 12 says this. The Bible says in that day that God will resurrect all men, some to eternal life and some to eternal contempt. He'll judge them unworthy of his attention. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ. Listen, every now and then I hear someone say, well, pastor, that seems really, really narrow-minded. That seems really harsh. How could a loving God send someone to hell? Hold on for a second. Hold on. Listen, just for a second. You're understanding that completely wrong. A loving God made you for eternal life. And when he made man, man was going to live forever with God in the garden. But man chose to sin. And sin has a penalty. God didn't thrust sin on man. God told man one job, don't touch the tree. And man sinned. And the sin they chose passed death upon them. 
and the sin you and I choose has consequences before a holy God. You see, you and I are already, by our own doing, are headed toward eternal judgment. It's not that God in heaven is waiting for folks to show up and be like, you know what? You're going to hell. No, no, no. God in heaven looks down to humanity and says they're all lost. They're all going to hell. My son is going to go and redeem them. My son is going to go and try to save them. And so the idea that, well, God's unjust because he sends people to hell. No, man is foolish for refusing the rescue that God sent his son. Imagine you're drowning in the ocean of your sin, your own making. And the boat comes and throws the lifeline out and says, just grab it. Accept my offer of salvation. I'll save you forever. No condemnation. Just get in the boat. And you shove the life preserver away and say, you're unfair for letting people die out here. God loved the world so much that he gave his son. You realize on the cross that the father could have stopped it at any moment. As they pulled his beard from his face as they platted a crown of thorns into his head, as they nailed his hands to the cross, they nailed his side and, well, they nailed his feet and riven his side. You realize God could have stopped that at any time, but he wanted you and I to not be condemned. And so to think, well, God's unjust because people go to hell. No, people don't have to go to hell. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why I believe every person in this room is here this morning because he came to save you. He came to love you. He sent his son and all God asks in return is that by faith, we would reach out and accept that offer of salvation. I want to go to one final set of verses. I'll be done in the next five or so minutes. Go to Romans chapter 10 if you have a Bible. Romans chapter number 10 and verse number 8. You're doing a great job listening. Those hamburgers will be ready in just a few moments. Romans chapter 10, verse number 8 says this. Paul is speaking to a group of people that he has just explained the whole gospel to. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6. He's in Romans chapter number 10 now. And he says this, but what saith it? The word is nigh thee. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. He's speaking to a group of people just like I'm speaking to. For those in the room who have never accepted by faith in Jesus to be saved, these are the people Paul's saying, hey, it's so close. You're almost there. What else do you have to do? Look verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. There are two things. How do I go from here to there? How do I go from condemned to not condemned? Well, there's two things. The word saved, let me bring that into kind of context. It means rescued from condemnation. It's the spiritual birth Jesus told Nicodemus about, that second birth. So two things have to happen to pass from death to life, to be reborn spiritually. Number one, there must be a belief in your heart, in the record of who God said Jesus was. There must be an understanding that he, as the son of God, came into earth to redeem fallen mankind by his death on the cross. He was buried. He rose again because death could not hold him. There must be a belief in your heart. And number two, there must be a confession with your mouth. Confession simply means to declare the truth of something. If you did something wrong, you confess, I was guilty. But in this case, what he's saying is a confession of your belief to God. A confession, a speaking out that you are who you said you were. And I am who you say I am. I am guilty and I am condemned. Let's keep reading verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, spiritual birth, salvation. And with the mouth confession is made known unto salvation. For the scripture saith, 
Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Listen, I've already said it this morning, and I'll say it one last time. You're here for a reason. And I truly believe that reason is because he wants you to be saved. I cannot save you, though. The person who invited you cannot save you. A church cannot pay the penalty of your sin. We're all sinners ourselves. We, we would, we couldn't, we, if we could die in your place, we'd be dying in our own guilt and not being able to satisfy God's wrath. But Jesus, as perfect, 100% man and 100% God, died to satisfy the wrath of God. And listen to me, that's the true purpose why he came. It's why he died. It's why he rose. So to accept the offer of salvation, the gift of heaven, this spiritual rebirth, two things have to happen. Number one, belief. Can I ask you this morning? To all of you, do you believe what the scripture says about Jesus? I asked you to trust this book. I've read for you a large portion. You've done a great job listening. I've read for you a large portion of what the Bible has to say, what Jesus declares about himself to be true. Do you believe what he said about himself? The second thing I ask, the confession with your mouth. We stopped reading in chapter uh, Romans 10, verse 11. I want to pick up in verse 12. Look at there. He says, for there is no difference between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over, over all, is rich unto all that call upon him. You know what he just said? It doesn't matter who you are, he can save you. It doesn't matter if you have a religious pedigree and you're a Jew, he can save you. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile and you have no claims to the promises of the Old Testament, he can save you. It doesn't matter if you grew up in church and you spared yourself from all kinds of sin, you still need to be saved, Nicodemus. It doesn't matter if you're the worst of sinners. Paul himself wrote a large portion of the New Testament, chiefest of sinners, he can save you. He's rich unto all that call on him. You don't have more sin than he has saving power. You'll never out the grace of God. So if you're here and you say, well, you don't know what I did. I was overseas and I did this and I was in a gang and I, I did this with my purity. You know, it doesn't matter. He is rich unto all that call on him. No one's ever going to call on Jesus and he say, oh, don't have enough to cover that. The Bible says the blood of Jesus covers us, cleanses us from all sin. Doesn't matter what it is. Verse number 13, look at it. Or whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Two questions and I'm done. Do you believe that Christ was sent into the world, not to condemn it, but to save it? Number two, are you willing to call upon the Lord and confess with your mouth to him that you need him to save you? If the answer to those two questions is yes, here's what I'm about to do. In a second, the piano player is going to come back. We're going to have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I'm going to start praying and we're going to go into what's called an invitation. Well, what am I getting invited to? I'm inviting you to respond to the offer of Jesus. Like he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And in a moment, as we go to prayer, if your heart is ready to receive that gift, if through the preaching you've heard, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm on my way to hell with my sin because I'm condemned, but Jesus died in my place and is offering to me by faith and a confession with my mouth, I'm ready to confess to him. I'm ready to tell him that he's Lord. I'm ready to ask him for forgiveness. I'm ready to accept saving grace. Well, then I challenge you in a moment as we go to prayer to go straight to Jesus, to let him save you. And like a man drowning in the ocean, that, that life preserver goes out there. When we go to prayer, grab onto that life preserver and call out to him. So do you believe? Are you willing to confess? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then go to Jesus. Let's pray.